You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed mind Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. This to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network, across cities and towns across Australia, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscana. I'm hosting today's program. The program will be podcast for the next few days. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. The program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is coming to you from the studios of Community Radio in Melbourne, courtesy of the Community Radio Network, which streams the program sometimes live, sometimes a little bit later on, across radio stations across this country. Also, our condolences to all those people who've been... uh, Lockdown in Brisbane, Bundaberg, Toowoomba. We have many listeners in Queensland. And also, again, we'd like to extend our condolences to all our listeners, their families and friends who have been affected by the floods in New South Wales. All right, today I'm going to try to do something which is a little bit difficult, but I think it's important that we don't shy away from difficult subjects. We're going to join the dots. We're going to join the dots regarding oppression See, a lot of people really don't compartmentalise what oppression is. And you can compartmentalise oppression in various ways. You can look at it in class, patriarchy, cultural, racial, sexual orientation and totalitarianism, both secular and religious. Now, whether we like it or not, We're all oppressors. We all oppress people in various ways, some of them consciously, some of them unconsciously. And the shenanigans that have been happening in uh, Canberra over the last uh, six to eight weeks, I think, highlight uh, certain questions about oppression and whether oppression can be tackled within a capitalist framework. A capitalist framework is a framework where, uh, as we know, it's about private investment for private profit. Now, a lot of people think that oppression can't be tackled within a capitalist framework, but I beg to disbelief. I believe that... Well, not believe, I I know. Think, not belief. I mean, belief is for people who believe in fairies at the bottom of the garden, but I I know that you can tackle oppression in its various guises, not all oppression, but most oppression, within any type of political framework. 
a question about patriarchy. Can you decrease the oppression which is inherent to patriarchy within a capitalist framework? You can. And we see that all the time. We see how laws are changed, how attitudes change, how institutions change. I mean, capitalism is a, a very amorphous type of concept and it can incorporate uh, most uh, changes in culture. We saw that with marriage equality. We saw that with the position of people uh, whose sexuality has uh, been uh, classed as unnatural and illegal in the past, been incorporated within a capitalist framework. And I think we can see the same thing. Changes occur which diminish, not you know, extinct, but actually diminish the effects of patriarchy in a capitalist society. It's the same with culture. Now, there are many cultural practices which are inherently oppressive, and you can think of a whole variety of cultural practices, you know, stemming from genital mutilation, whether it's male or female, to various other cultural practices where people have to do certain things because it's their, you know, it's the given cultures, the culture of the majority. Now, obviously, within a capitalist framework, you can, and we do, see changes in culture. We see changes in culture as far as uh, removing uh, the more oppressive elements of cultural oppression. We see it with racial oppression. And there's nothing stopping uh, this country under a capitalist uh, regime uh, negotiating a treaty with First Nations people in this country. And we've seen over the past uh, few years uh, the increasing reaction to the intolerance regarding racial issues in this country. You can, I think you can tackle uh, racial inequality in a capitalist society. And again, in a totalitarian regime where the state has total power, whether it's a secular totalitarianism or religious-based totalitarianism or religious fundamentalist-based totalitarianism, again, you can tackle many of these oppressive cultures. But there is one type of oppression which cannot be tackled within a capitalist society, and that's class. And we've spoken about class on this program ad nauseum over the years. And I don't accept the uh, traditional um, class divisions. I think class in a 21st century society, especially in a Western culture, is obviously based on the concept of uh, economic inequality. That's what it's about. And people can move from one class to another. In Australia, we have four main classes currently. We have that 1% that owns the means of production, distributions, exchange and communications, which uh, usually sets the political agenda, the parliamentary agenda, because of the power they're able to exercise. We have about 8% of Australians who are part of the investment class, who have disposable income, who are able to utilise this country's investment-friendly laws in order to uh, maximise returns to them at the expense of the general community, or legally, of course. Then we have what I describe as the working class, those people who basically work to pay their bills. And uh, there are many people in professional jobs, 
white-collar jobs who are basically working to pay their bills. And there are some people within the blue-collar industries and the trades who have enough disposable income to become part of the investment class. So it's about whether you can actually pay your uh, bills for that month, that week, that year. And then there's 30% of Australians who basically rely on Social Security benefits to survive. So we do have class in this country. And in order to tackle class oppression, class oppression can be modified within a capitalist society. And we've seen that with the introduction of a social security system, not because those who exercise power wanted to introduce it, but because of the pressure placed on them to change the reality faced by many people who are not part of the investment class or ruling class in this country. But in order to remove the issue of class oppression, we need to abolish or tackle capitalism, private investment for private profit. Now, ultimately, it doesn't matter whose boot or foot is on your neck. It doesn't matter whether they're white or black, pink or yellow, whether they're male or female, whether they're gay or straight. It doesn't really matter. What matters is the fact that they've got their their boot on your neck. And what we are seeing is a transformation in Australian society, slow transformation, but rapid in comparison to the past, where many of the oppressions which individuals face and communities face are being tackled. And obviously the, la- the latest one has been patriarchal oppression. Now, we've also got another oppression which is called imperialist oppression. And if you look at the West Papuan situation, they are the victims of imperialist oppression. And imperialist oppression is not just a Western phenomenon. It's a phenomenon where one group dominates another group and strips them of their natural resources in order to enrich themselves at the expense of that other group. So we have all these types of oppressions in our society and we are all guilty. I'm as guilty as the next person. I've been an oppressor, whether consciously or unconsciously. But the important thing is that the struggle against oppression is ultimately a struggle against capitalism and class. Although capitalism can incorporate many and resolve to a certain degree many of the oppressive practices which occur in our society, whether it's patriarchal, cultural, racial, racial, totalitarian, imperialistic, and the list goes on and on, it cannot incorporate the struggle against class divisions in our society. Listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia of other community radio network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. The program is podcast. If you wonder how to access the podcast, go to 3cr.org.au. Ultimately, what oppression is allowed to exist to a significant degree is linked to the struggle to call out that oppression. Now, we've seen 
parliamentary behaviour, ingrained parliamentary behaviour at a federal level, which is totally unacceptable. And while the rest of society has moved on, they don't seem to have moved on. And a significant issue has been is that people have not been willing to call out that oppression because there is a price to pay when you call out that oppression. Miss Higgins found herself in that situation when she alleged she had been raped in an office a few metres from the Prime Minister's office by a colleague. She had to make up a decision. Did she report the matter or did she kiss goodbye to her career in the parliamentary sphere? And after 18 months of struggling with that issue, she decided that for her own sanity, it was best to report what had happened than and forget about her parliamentary career. And this is the dilemma. When you struggle against oppression, there is always a price to pay. And in a totalitarian regime, that means imprisonment and possibly torture and execution. In Western society, in liberal, so-called liberal democracies, what it means is marginalisation, ostracisation and the loss of the ability to earn an income, the loss of a career. And we see this over and over again when whistleblowers in this country raise issues of uh, corruption, inequality, and the list goes on and on. But if you don't call it out, it'll continue to fester, as we saw it fester in the federal parliament for years, decades, because people were not willing to call it out because of the personal cost. Sometimes you need to accept the personal costs, and I could describe a number of situations I've been involved in over the decades, where although you lose out financially, and maybe as far as your career is concerned, you, by calling that type of behaviour out, you can institute attitudinal change and possibly push for a cultural change. Now, if you wonder what anarchy is all about, anarchos without rulers, what gives rulers the ability to exercise power, inequalities in, inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggles, the struggle to share power, devolve power, the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. So ultimately, the anarchist struggle is an anti-capitalist struggle. It's a struggle against private investment for private profit. It's a struggle against oppression. It's a struggle based on the concepts of mutual aid and cooperation, not competition. It's a struggle which aims to break down hierarchies and hopefully tackle the issue of oppression. Not that anarchists are free of the guilt of oppressive behaviour. We're just as uh, you know, guilty as many other sections of the community, but at least within an anarchist framework... You don't have the hierarchical structures which allow individuals or a small group to determine the fate of billions of people. 
Now, a lot of people say to me, well, that sounds very, 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 you know, utopian, Joe. I mean, it goes against human nature. Well, think about it. Does it go against human nature? Are we conditioned to be murderers and rapists? Are human beings normally murderers and rapists? And if we removed the authority of the state and replaced it with a concepts of mutual aid and cooperation, would things be any different? And obviously, they'd be very different. Because... See, what the state does, and this is what people seem to forget, is the role of the state through its armed forces and to a lesser degree police and to a lesser degree cultural practices, the role of the state is to ensure that those who exercise power continue to exercise power. We see that firsthand in Burma. That is the role of the state. I mean, we've seen with the COVID-19 crisis in Australia, we've seen how what people think are their constitutional rights being removed with the flick of a switch, click of a finger. So we can actually see the power that the state is able to exercise over the lives of people. So that struggle to share power and share wealth ultimately is a struggle about breaking down hierarchies between people. Now, sometimes things are difficult to follow. I make no excuses for attempting, and the key word is attempting, to look at that question of oppression because it is fundamental, fundamental to the struggle of creating a society without rulers, a society where power is, is shared and wealth is shared and used for the common good. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, people say to me, as I said before, it's against human nature what you're saying. We're all naturally rapists and murderers and thieves, and we need religion and the state authority to ensure that we behave ourselves. I mean, that's what we're told constantly. But what we find ourselves... We find ourselves in a situation where the murderers, the rapists and the thieves hold the leaves of, levers of power, enshrine them in, in religious mumbo-jumbo and secular mumbo-jumbo and, and we're told there's no other option except to follow the policies which we are currently following which marginalise and ostracise and pauperise significant sections of the community, not just in Australia but the rest of the world. Let's move on. The water market. Ah, I hear you say. What water market, Joe? What water market? Well, those of you who don't live in the country and living in the country now kind of hones your uh, interest in water, especially if you're doing a little bit of farming like I'm doing these days. Water is everything. Without water, land is useless. Now, a number of years ago, I think it was about a decade, maybe 15 years ago, we went down the privatisation market as far as water is concerned. That's right, the lifeblood of the community, the essence of existence, access to water. Don't drink for two or three days and see how you feel. Now, we have a water market. 
where water is bought and sold on the so-called open market. Now, things have been so crappy, I hate to use the word crappy, but so, you know, difficult in our so-called water market that even the Conservative Liberal National Party was forced to hold an inquiry into the current water market. And the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, after a two-year investigation, has handed down its report. And it's reported that the water market in Australia currently is a manipulation bonanza. That people are manipulating the water market for short-term financial gain. Nothing to do with the need for water to grow food. Nothing to do with that, but about manipulating the market and it's legal to manipulate the market. There are no rules against market manipulation. And we know that in a capitalist society based on the concept of private investment for private profit, that the trademark is competition, manipulation, gouging, and to have a market created which didn't need to be created, it could have still remained in the uh, boundaries of state, local and federal authorities, regulation of water, to put water, the lifeblood of the community, in the hands of the private sector and expect the private sector to work in the interests of the community and those who need water was fantasy, total fantasy. Even the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, if you look through their report, highlights that it is fantasy. They don't use the word fantasy. I use the word fantasy, but they highlight it. It's a fantasy. And now they're recommending that we have an, a, a water authority regulation agency to regulate the private marketplace. And we see this over and over again in all spheres of human activity in Australia currently. I mean, during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation tsunami which has swept over the country over the last four to five decades, we've seen that you cannot trust the private marketplace. You cannot trust an ideological, philosophical changes which are based on private investment for private profit. Because the role of a private investor is to maximise profits at the expense of their workers, at the expense of the community, and at the expense of their customers. They are there for their shareholders. They are there for their owners. That's what they're there for. It's about maximising profit. They are not there to look after the environment, they are not there to ensure that water is fairly distributed in a marketplace where water has been made into a commodity. They are not there to ensure that housing prices are kept down so people are housed in a housing market which is unregulated and pushed by 
the need to increase profits. And we've seen the ridiculous situation as interest rates fall, housing prices continuing to increase. So so what does government do in these situations? They organise a regulatory authority. Now, if anybody has had any experience with dealing with a regulatory authority in any sphere of human activity, and many of you have in terms of telecommunications, your mobile phone and your mobile phone provider, and that, you know, the telecommunications ombudsman, there's all these ombudsmen around the place which are supposedly there to help you. And you find two issues when it comes to these regulatory authorities. One, they're underfinanced, and two, they're understaffed. It's all very well having a regulatory authority, but if the government of the day is not willing to give them the staff and the finances to do their job, as we saw with the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, well, then how can they do their job? It's a little bit like asking me to do surgery on somebody who needs their appendix out and giving me a nail file to do the surgery. No stitches, no knives, no, you know, no sterile equipment. Just a nail file, say, look, take, take out the appendix. Well, obviously there's going to be problems, big problems. And that's the dilemma. When government, especially at the federal level, has been hijacked, that's right, hijacked with your permission, that's right, our permission, we've allowed this to happen because we thought we were all going to get rich, you know, rich beyond measures, you know. Let's privatise everything. Let's give everything to the private sector and we're all going to be rich. I mean, the latest casualty is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Great scheme. I fought for it for over 40 years. But now, National Insurance Disability Scheme is manipulated by private corporations, and we're not talking about small companies, but private corporations who've muscled into the area in order to maximise their profits at the expense of their customers. And that's the people with disabilities. Think about it. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. A few other websites you may be interested in. You can go to uh, Defend and Extend Public Housing, Public Housing, Everybody's Business. You can go to um, anarchistmedia.org. Public interest before corporate interest. Just remember, if you're unhappy with what's happening, you're unhappy unhappy with the political shenanigans, you're unhappy with the current virtual ALP conference that's happening and the direction the ALP is going in, if you're not happy with the extent of green policies, you've always got public interest before corporate interest to look at. Go to the website, pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I.net, and if you're interested, join. There's no point complaining in life unless you're willing to do something about it. There's no point complaining. Nobody listens, nobody particularly cares about your complaints unless you get together with other people, broaden the debate, you know, about what should and shouldn't shouldn't be happening. Think about it. You can go to uh, you can leave a message on 0439 395 489. I mean, I get all types of messages on 0439 395 489, but leave a message. I may ring you back. I may not, depending on the message. Normally I do ring back. 
Uh, you can all, if you're sick of technology and you've got your crystal radio there listening to the Anarchist World this week, you can always write to me at Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20 Parkville 3052 or leave a message on 0439 395 489. You can go to the Facebook page, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the public, and the list goes on and on. YouTube channel, Twitter, not that it makes much difference at the end of the day. And what makes difference is feet on the ground. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, I am sick and tired. No, I'm not sick and tired of broadcasting, although I should be after almost uh, 44 years. But I'm sick and tired of the concept of equal opportunity. I mean, the Australian Labor Party is trying to rebrand itself as the Equal Opportunity Party. So what does equal opportunity mean? I mean, life in Australia is a handicap race. There are some people that are 50 metres in front of the pack before the start of a 100 metre race and there are other people that are 50 metres behind the pack before a 100 metre race. That's Australia in 2021. Irrespective of what they try to tell you about an egalitarian community, a community based on equal opportunity. It's total ludicrous garbage. Garbage of the first order. Think about it. You've got a 100 metre race. You go to the Olympics. You'll be coming up in Tokyo. You see your 100 metre race over in 9.8 or 9.9 seconds. Everybody's on the same starting line. Bang. Off they go. The fastest runner wins. Whether they're drug-assisted or not, who knows, but the fastest runner wins. Life. Let's get back to life. Life in Australia. Equal opportunity. The type of opportunity you're able to avail yourself is totally dependent on the amount of disposable income your parents or guardians have. It's that simple. Now, somebody who is born in a household which relies on social security benefits to survive, who needs to go to an underfunded, under-resourced public school, who may be facing issues related to their upbringing, which are related to maybe drug use by their parents or guardians, mental illness will be 50 metres behind that starting line in our society. Every time I see a Smith family ad or hear a Smith family ad on television or radio, I feel physically ill. Not because I've got anything against the Smith family, because they're filling a gap, a hole, or they're trying to fill a gap or a hole, that the state that we should be filling as a community. Let's not forget that 13%, that's about one in eight, one in nine people in this country, live below the poverty line. And of those 13%, almost 700,000 are children. Now, do you think those 700,000 children have the same opportunity 
through an education system which is underfunded and under-resourced as those children who, courtesy of the Australian taxpayer, through the public subsidisation of private education, public subsidisation, your taxpayers' money for their education, do you think they will have the same opportunities in life? Well, obviously they won't. They'll be 50 metres in front of the pack. You know, helped over the hurdles, given access into organisations that you could never have access to. Look, I came through the public education sector. I was a bright little brat. I mean, that was was what they used to call me, a bright little brat. You know, somebody from the uh, underclasses using the public education sector to get through, you know, get some type of degree, go to university, first member of my family ever to go to university, and there are many other Australians who in the 1970s, when we had three tertiary education, courtesy of the much maligned Whitland-led Labor government, a Labor government that Mr Albanese could take a leaf out, but they haven't got the guts today to take a leaf out of that government's policies. You know, you know, bright little brat, there's a ceiling. And it's not just a patriarchal glass ceiling. It's a class glass ceiling. You're fine, you get your degree, but, it, you know, the best jobs never meant for you, mate. They're meant for somebody else. So there's no equal opportunity. It's total garbage. Education is not a social elevator. It could be a social ele- ele- elevator. What we have is two... We have an apartheid system in education... It is an apartheid system where children don't mix. There is no mixing. There is no friendships, groups. There's none whatsoever. There's no mixing between the private and the public sector. The public sector and those teachers working in the public education sector do the best they can under difficult circumstances. But there is no mixing of people in our society. And that's a problem. When you've got an apartheid system as far as education is concerned, where money, access to money, determines what type of education system you're going to use, then you've got real problems because what you are doing is you're ensuring the divisions which exist today will exist tomorrow and exist the day after and the day after and the day after. At least in Finland, Private education is outlawed. Now, I've got no problems with private education, but I would like them to pay their own way. If a parent feels so determined that their kid, you know, needs to have a private education and they're willing to pay for it, I don't care. But I do care when billions of dollars more that actually go to the public health sector, are given to the private education sector, which educates less than 30% of children in this country. And if you talk about equal opportunity, it does not exist. It has never existed and will not exist within a capitalist framework where we have class divisions. Let's move on. Public housing. Now, I understand that... uh, uh, defend and extend public housing. Um, well, co-convener, Mr Howard Morosi, is uh, 
um, putting forward a response to the Victorian Labor government's 10-year housing strategy. Unfortunately, the comments close on the 9th of April. Not that Howard is stupid enough to believe that his submission will make any difference. But at least he wants to make sure there is some type of, you know, dissenting voice. Because public housing has been buried, cremated by the current Labor government and previous Liberal governments in Victoria. They have thrown their hat into the private sector. Now, over the last three decades, they have done everything possible to destroy the concept of public housing. Now, I keep saying that public housing is everybody's business. Public housing is not, you know, an issue which is solely related to homelessness. In an era when fewer and fewer people are able to access the housing market, and even those people who are now accessing the housing market at ridiculously low interests, taking out ridiculous loans for shoeboxes around the country, will find themselves in an exceptionally difficult situation if the interest rates even double in the next uh, few years. And I remember, I'm old enough to remember when I was paying 17.5% interest on a mortgage, home mortgage. But um, think about it. If you've got a half a million dollar loan, which is standard these days, if you want a little little uh, shoebox somewhere out in the suburbs, half a million dollars, 10%, that's $50,000. 17%, that's about oh, $78,000, $79,000 just in interest. Think about it. Who earns that? Who's able to look after that? Well, you're not. But let's get back to the public housing sector. I don't want to muse about interest rates today. Right. So why is public housing everybody's business? Why is it a win-win situation? Well, let's go through it step by step. Now, I encourage you over the next few days when it's put up to go to the uh, Defend and Extend Public Housing uh, Facebook page or Public Housing Everybody's Business Facebook page or my own Facebook pages in order to look at uh, Mr Morosi's uh, response and uh, how it is a co-convener of, of uh, Defend and Extend Public Housing to look at the response to the Victorian Labor Government's 10-year strategy. Because the 10-year strategy is solely based on grandfathering, you like that? Grandfathering public housing. And what does that mean? That means when somebody moves or dies, that public housing unit is privatised, sold. That means when an apartment complex is up for redevelopment, it means that you enter into a private-public partnership with the private sector and 70 to 80 to 90% belongs to the private sector and the rest will go to public housing. So what it means is over the next decade they expect the public housing sector following this particular strategy to disappear. So who will provide housing for people who are not able to access the private housing market? Obviously, people who some people are able to afford rents 
and they will continue to rent for the rest of their lives, not having the security that a mortgage or ownership of a house gives you. And others will just find themselves homeless. Because this is a policy, this is a strategy about giving titles and management rights to privately run organisations to provide housing. It's a little bit like the National Disability Insurance Scheme where the private sector is skimming the milk off the scheme and providing basic services to people. It's a little bit like uh, it goes on and on. Any, any privatised area, you can see the same story. So why is public housing good? Well, in a capitalist society, you don't want the private sector to dominate a particular marketplace. If they dominate a particular marketplace, they form cartels, whether officially or unofficially, set prices to maximise returns to them and their shareholders. It's that simple. And it's the same in the housing market as we've seen today. If there is a weak public housing sector and no strategy to extend the public housing sector, what you see is more and more money flowing to the private sector. Housing prices increasing and the beneficiaries are basically the investment class who can use negative gearing laws to maximise their returns. It's very simple. So what does public housing do? One, it helps to provide equal opportunity because there is nothing more important to a child's growth than security and housing security is fundamental to childhood development. If you've got to move every 12 months to a new school and form new friendship groups, it is particularly difficult for that individual and it's highly likely, not in all cases, but it's highly likely in a significant number of cases that those children will fall behind in school and may be attracted to a more, let's say, criminal lifestyle. So housing security is fundamental for childhood development. Public housing provides security as long as you pay 25% of your income, and that's the key, 25% of your income, not market rents, which are not related to your income, but 25% of your income, then you've got that secure base via which to rear a family. Very simple. I mean, traditionally, public housing wasn't just for people in desperate situations who were thrown into ghettos. Public housing was for anybody who could not afford to enter the private market as far as purchasing a house is concerned. So public housing provides secure environment. It ensures that money is released into the community. Now, if there's one thing the COVID-19 crisis highlighted when Job Seeker was doubled as an emergency, now it's back to what it was. Oh, sorry, my apologies, I made a mistake. You did get a $3.57 rise every day. My apologies. Look, I, look, I like to be right here in the anarchist world this week. You know, I, I keep forgetting about all that money you've got extra on Job Seeker, but, you know, you'll sort that out if you live in Brisbane currently. Now, so getting back, getting back to public housing, so what it means is that by providing secure housing 
and 25% of income, you release spending power. So who spends money in our society? Basically, believe it or not, it's those people of the least because they need to spend every spare cent to improve the situation they find themselves in. So when your rents are fixed at 25% of income, it means you've got more disposable income to buy other stuff. Whether that's good or bad is a different matter. But think about it. So there are many positives to public housing, exceptional positives to public housing. And as I keep saying, the best way to build the public housing sector is to forget about the Labor government's 10-year strategy. It's a strategy to privatise what's left of the public housing sector, give away the titles to the community, affordable and uh, social housing sector. The best way is to extend the public housing sector. Now, how do you finance it? Very simple. If you've had the pleasure of buying a home, you've got a thing called sales tax on your home. That's right. It's pretty big. As prices go up, the amount of money that goes to the government coffers increases. And over $6 billion will go into the Victorian state government's coffers. This year alone, with the as people buy homes, you know, buy and sell, buy and sell, you know, you've got to pay the sales tax. So if that $6 billion was quarantined for public housing, you could house everybody on the public housing waiting list in 12 months. You could house everybody who was homeless in six weeks. You could house 15% of the Victorian population within a decade. But no, we need that money to build more tunnels and give money to Transurban and dig tunnels and, you know, that's what we need it for. Not for public housing, doesn't matter. I mean, those of you who live in big cities will notice that uh, as the COVID-19 crisis begins to abate, the homeless find themselves back on the streets and it's very simple. Why? Because during this period, governments have been busily using this, the situation, the COVID-19 crisis, to continue their privatisation agenda as far as public housing is concerned. And when it comes to gold stars and rubber stamps, elephant stamps, the biggest the biggest privatisers of public housing in the state of in, in, in the country in the country is the Victorian Labor government, led by Mr Andrews. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on. Now, I'm interested in looking at the concept of war crimes or just desensitisation and military. Now, a lot of people look at the situation in Burma and shake their heads and say, "How?" can Burmese troops kill unarmed civilians in that country? And over 550, possibly 600 by now, have been killed, not by police, but in the majority of cases by Burmese soldiers. At the same time, we had the Burriton Report, and we've seen the extension of the Burriton Report, and we've seen that Australian special forces have been accused of murdering over 120 civilians, some women and children. That's murdering, not collateral damage, but murdering in Afghanistan, in our 17-year uh, uh, residence there. So what is it that is done to people 
in the military to ensure they become natural-born killers because human beings are not natural-born killers. You know, we like to get angry and fight and, you know, in moments of heat, but we don't go out and specifically point guns at people and shoot them dead. If we did, they'd be dead all, all around the country. And even in a country like the United States of America, where mass shootings occur, it's not a constant daily feature. And they've got guns galore. So what is it in the military process that breaks down a human being and reassembles them in a way that they become natural-born killers, that they don't ask any questions when they're asked to point a gun at somebody and pull a trigger, even if it's their fellow you know, countrymen and women? We see that in Burma and we see that around the world. We saw that in Sudan about 15 months ago. We see it in Yemen currently. We see it in many areas of the world where there are military disputes. And to a significant degree, military training is the same around the world. And the more authoritarian regime and the more specialised armed services forces are, the greater the capacity to use these forces to murder people indiscriminately, as we see in Burma, as we saw in Afghanistan, re-Australian troops. I just don't think it's, you know, an Asian problem. It's a problem around the world, and it's been a problem for a long time because military training is about desensitisation, is about ensuring that who you kill has no human features about them. We saw it in the Holocaust. We saw it in World War Two. We saw how 20 million Russians were wiped off the face of the earth by the Nazis. So militarisation, by its very nature, creates killers. And you do that in a variety of ways. And the greater the risk of oppression in a particular society, the more isolated the military are from the people. Now, in Afghanistan, Australian troops lived, you know, in their little bubble in the province they were uh, supposedly pacifying. Them and us mentality. Them was every Afghanistan, Afghanistanian. Us was the Australian military troops. In Burma, it's the same thing. Burmese military troops who are who are responsible for atrocities over the last six decades, many atrocities, including the death of 6,000 Buddhist monks in 1988, live in barracks. They're isolated from the community. They're considered to be special people. And this is part of that militarisation of society which allows ordinary human beings, family members with children, to do the most unspeakable crimes. Look at the unspeakable crimes which were performed by the Nazis during World War Two. I mean, many of those people, you know, were loving fathers, loving mothers. They loved their children. But when it came to other people's children, they were so desensitised, they were actually able to eliminate people as if they were not human, mere cattle. So... It's about militarisation. That's why anarchists have always been against militarisation. They've been against the concept of having a, a military which has been so, so desensitised it can be used to create the most inhospitable 
environment and be guilty of the most unspeakable crimes on behalf of some ruling elite. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. And last but not least, don't forget May Day's on the 1st of May. Yes, in some lucky states you have a public holiday and you'll be marching around on the 1st of May. Unfortunately, Victoria, we march around. Well, I don't, but they march around on the first Sunday after the 1st of May. But on the 1st of May, we'll be conducting a little bit of a Melbourne historical anarchist walk. Bit of exercise. Now, Chummy Fleming was the Melbourne anarchist, well-known Melbourne anarchist, if you look at the historical literature involved in many campaigns. Uh, he was such an, uh, an entity that he had a little laneway named after him, Chummy, C-H-U-M-M-I-E, Lane, in Carlton in Melbourne. So we'll be starting our little walk at Chummy Lane in Melbourne at 11am on Saturday the 1st of May, and then we'll be visiting historical anarchist sites in the Melbourne CBD, including... Her Majesty's Theatre. So what have anarchists got to do with Her Majesty's Theatre? Well, in 1886, on the 1st of May 1886, heeding the call of the Combined Trade Unions of Canada and the United States of America to mark the 1st of May as a day of a national protest for an eight-hour day, the Andre brothers formed the Melbourne Anarchist Club, the first anarchist organisation in Australia. So we'll be starting off at Chummy Lane, finishing at Her Majesty's Feet, a lot of little places in between which were important to the anarchist movement, which was a very strong movement in the 1880s and 1890s in the city of Melbourne. And then we will walk seven metres, a whole seven metres across the road to the Paramount Food Hall for a bit of a feed. So if you're sick and tired of, you know, walking up and down streets with, you know, holding banners, look, go to the May Day celebrations in your city. But think about it, if you're in Melbourne, come along for the Melbourne Historical Anarchist Walk. You uh, don't have to book; just turn up. I'll talk more about it in a few days, in a few programs' time. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au from the studios of the Melbourne radio station 3CR. The program is podcast. It will be podcast the next few days. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Thank you once again, irrespective of where you live in Australia or overseas, for listening to the Anarchist World this week. And hopefully, hopefully, this program will help you get out of that chair Stop you being a click activism. Stop you lounging around norm or normette like in your lounge, complaining about everything, getting up and making a difference. Listen in to the Anarchist World this week, next week via the Community Radio Network. Construction, sorcerer of death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger.
So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality and a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.